As we continue through Luke, we've been on this journey since the beginning of 2017. We will close out our study at Easter. As we do continue, we are in the last week of Jesus' life here on earth uh, before he goes to the cross and before the resurrection. And so the plot is thickening, and we've seen the buildup over the last few weeks. And today we get to the upper room and to the events surrounding the Passover meal. And so my prayer is today that um, this night before Jesus' death, in the context here, that God would move our hearts afresh in a new way this morning to what's going on here, because the meaning of it is full. There's so much, and I pray today at the end of the day that um, you and I would, would know what it means to have Jesus, his death, his resurrection, um, cling literally to our memory so that we would be those who overflow with a life of worship and proclamation of his kingdom. That's my prayer today. That's my hope as we look at this, this great text. Um, as we do look at it, I, I want us to uh, first see the context here, the first six verses set up a context full of celebration, anticipation, but also one of rejection in the background and betrayal as well. And so look at what uh, Luke says as we begin this chapter. He says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And so there was a lot of buildup in the city of Jerusalem. There was a lot of excitement in Jewish homes, and there was a lot of preparation going on for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was approaching, and it was this week-long celebration, uh, and it was followed by the day of Passover. In fact, when you think of these two feasts, really what we refer to it today is simply as that, Passover. And so the celebration of Passover, uh, the, the real, um, I guess, thematic, central celebration of it was the Passover Meal, And it was a meal that was eaten uh, every year, year after year, by Jews to remember an event in history. Um, back in Exodus 12, we read about God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, where uh, the Israelites were instructed uh, on this uh, occurrence of this meal to uh, take a spotless lamb and have it slaughtered um, and um, on this, in this meal, they were to remember this event where God, back in history, told them, take a lamb, slaughter it, uh, take the blood, and put it over your doorpost. And so this gathering of this meal would remember that because on that uh, night, if you remember, the angel of the Lord would come and, and stricken down the firstborn of every home and the wailing that happened in Egypt. And this was the act of God's judgment, his wrath upon the Egyptians, um, and the Israelites remember this deliverance, this, this Passover, and that's where the Passover comes is from, is this idea that God's wrath, his judgment would pass over them. And so they eat this meal. They, they remember together God's deliverance of the Israelites. And so this is decades upon decades and, and centuries upon centuries that they remember this together as families gathered in their homes and throughout the cities as their deliverance from Egypt as a people happened so many years 
ago. And so there's excitement, there's anticipation. And in verse 2, it says not only that, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him, speaking of Jesus, to death, for they were afraid of the people. And so we've seen the hate of the Jewish religious leaders mounting against Jesus, but they have been powerless to do anything about Jesus because of what? His popularity. That's why they were afraid of the people. They could not come up with any way on their own to arrest Jesus. But now, as we move to verse 3, something becomes possible. And look at what happens in verse 3. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. An interesting phrase there. Satan entered into Judas. We don't know completely the full understanding of what that may mean. Was this this Satan taking literal possession of Judas? Uh, Was he possessed and possibly so? But but at the least, what we see here is is Judas is, is influenced by Satan. He is greatly influenced by the enemy and under Satan's direction. And look what happens as a result of that. It says, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests, the officers, how he might betray him to them. They were glad, right? They agreed to give him money for this. I mean, this is what they've been waiting for. Here's an opportunity to finally get this guy, to finally get him. And then look at verse 6. So he consented, Judas did, and began seeking a good, listen to this phrase, opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. This is pretty interesting. This phrase, an opportunity to portray him. I want to stir your memory a little bit this morning. Do you remember last week? What was the phrase that began with opportunity? You remember that? Luke is very intriguing, I think, this morning. An opportunity here to portray him. But do you remember back in verse 13 last week? That when tribulation comes upon the earth during that first century where Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the temple's going to be destroyed. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples, which Judas is a part of? He told them this, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, for your testimony. So, so interesting that one of his 12 who heard that is taking this opportunity not to share a testimony, but to instead portray Jesus, to betray him. And so he took this opportunity to do that. It's interesting what's going on right here. This is more than just human scheming. This is a cosmic plan to destroy the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we see it. We see it in Revelation 12. It's kind of this cosmic heaven view picture of what's happening here. We, we see it even in Luke in chapter 4 in verses 1 through 13 with the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. And so we, we know that Satan wants to take him down, but he can't. Because ironically here, isn't it amazing what Satan does to lead Judas to get Jesus arrested will lead to Satan's downfall and his crushing eventually on his head. Amazing. But I will say this, the opposition that we see here, the enemy influencing Judas, is a very real one. It's a very real one. 
It's a very real one to, to, to where it's even present today, where the enemy wants to oppose the church and the work of God's people. And so here's the deal. And John 10.10 10 tells us that Jesus has a purpose, right? Jesus' purpose is I have come to give life and to give it abundantly, to give it fully. But what's the purpose of the enemy? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal. And anything to do with Jesus, he wants to do those things with. He wants to steal. So he wants to steal um, you away from the church and from community in the church. He wants to... to he wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to kill and destroy your marriage. He wants to kill and destroy your family. He wants to steal everything from you that is good, honorable, and glorifies the Lord. And he will do anything he can to influence you to make that happen. Do anything. He will use porn. He will use alcohol. He will use drugs. He will use the deception of the love of money and the pursuit of it. He will use anything he can to take you down. Because guess what? He doesn't want you to use your life for an opportunity for a testimony about Jesus. Instead, he wants to use it as an opportunity to betray Jesus. And man, that's what Judas did. And Judas takes this opportunity and he immediately jumps on it. Money. I'm going to get some money. It's not really much, but he's going to get some money. This guy is deceived. Oh, he's so deceived. This is the guy who hung out with Jesus for three years and saw his life and saw his love for people, his love for him, and, and saw modeled and trained the, the work of the kingdom and the gospel. And he was up front and sinner and so close to him, but yet he was deceived. And so that's the context to all that's happening here in this moment, in this time of celebration of all that is good for, for the Jews and the Israelites. And yet, all of this is going on behind the scenes because guess what? Satan wants to come in and still kill and destroy. But what this text celebrates as well is the beauty that Satan will give his attempts and he will take people down along the way. But what we see right here is Jesus is victorious because the meal that he sits and eats with his disciples here in a, a, a moment is a celebration of victory, of victory. And so look what happens in verse 7. It says, it came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so it's, it's here. The Passover is here. The anticipation, the buildup, now the time has come. Jesus sent Peter and John, two of his disciples, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat. They said to him, though, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And so, interesting here, Jesus asked Peter and John to get the Passover prepared so that Jesus and his disciples may eat together. And the disciples want to know, hey, where are we going to eat this thing? Where are we going to get things ready at and prepared so that we can gather and eat Together. Now, what's interesting about what's going on in the city is they probably weren't the only group of people looking for a place to celebrate Passover. There probably was thousands looking for a different place. 
Um, friends and family come in town. Uh, some people didn't uh, celebrate Passover in their homes. They, they would do it in other places, sometimes on rooftops. Sometimes they would find different places to do that. And so they weren't the only ones. And so this is kind of an interesting text here because here we see Jesus just quietly, even in the events that are going on during this week, and he knows what's coming. He quietly is in control. He's quietly in charge, even to the point that it seems like he has this pre-existing agreement with this man for them to come eat at his house and in this upper room. And so the detail described by Luke is amazing. It's amazing. And we see here divine direction and provision at work, and we see ultimately the sovereignty of God in Jesus Christ, his son. He's got it all figured out. He's got it. You remember the donkey a few weeks ago? Go to that one, right? Same thing here. Jesus has got everything under control. So he's working out this divine plan, and look what happens in verse 13. They left, or 13, they left and found everything Peter and John did just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus took care of where this is going to take place, and now the disciples begin to prepare. It seems they would have taken, at that time, a lamb. They would have gone to the temple court where the priest would sacrifice them. The priest would take the blood. It would be poured out at the foot of the altar. The lamb's fat at this time would have been burned on the altar, burnt offerings. All this would have been accompanied by, by singing as well. And we mentioned that a little bit earlier. Psalm 113 through 118 is called the Hallel. Um, the disciples would have had the lamb roasted with bitter herbs. Then they would have gathered after sunset in this room, this upper room at the Passover meal. And during this meal, the head of the house uh, began the meal with thanksgiving for that day. And then uh, for the wine. And he would pray over the first of the four cups that would mark the feast. And so um, you didn't just have one cup of wine where we usually at communion would remember. You've got four different cups that would mark the feast. Uh, before the main dish, there would be a course of greens, bitter herbs served, and followed by that was called the Passover Haggadah. Not Haggadahs, but Haggadah. Are you guys ice cream? Oh, that, that'd, be, that'd be awesome. I want to celebrate Passover. Um, and so during that time, a boy would stand up, and he would ask the meaning of all this. Why are we gathering? What's the meaning of all this? The lamb and everything that's been taking place at this feast. And the head of the house would begin to explain the symbols in terms of the exodus and the Passover of the Israelites out of Egypt, their deliverance. And they would sing Psalm 113, 114. Then a second cup of wine would introduce the main dish. Then a third cup would follow, which was known as the cup of blessing, which would be accompanied by the prayer of thanksgiving. And then the participants would then drink a fourth, that final cup of wine, as they sang the rest of the halal, Psalm 115, 118. So the preparations of these disciples, they're extensive, because that's what they're now gathering and getting together. And so this meal was very significant. And then look what happens in verse 14, or 13, excuse me, 14. When the hour had come, this is time for the meal, the Passover meal, it's here. He reclined at the table, Jesus did, and the apostles with him, his 12 disciples. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So I want you to get this picture. 
Here's Jesus at this table. And he's got his disciples around him. And this is a ragtag group, right? You got Judas, the betrayer, he's present. You got Matthew, the tax collector who's cheated people, who, you know, you name it. You've got all the other guys who have their list of issues and sins. After this meal, next week, they're going to argue about who around the table is the greatest. And so what's funny about this, or not funny, what's interesting about this, kind of humbling, is Jesus is talking about suffering and all that kind of stuff, and they're wondering, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? You know, it's me. Like, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the LeBron James, right? Or the Sion Williamson. I need to kind of move up in my, my rankings here. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what they're thinking. So these guys are a jacked-up group of people around this table. And I think that's what's the beauty of this. I think that's what the beauty of this table is, is here is Jesus sitting with these three who he has called out. And here's the one thing that they have done. They have followed him. They have followed him. They have followed him. They have followed him. What's interesting, in just a few hours, they're going to find themselves running from him, denying him. Three times over, Peter will. And it is going to get all messy on their end. But then eventually, what will happen? When Jesus returns from the grave, they will come back. They'll ask good questions, right? Thomas will doubt a little bit, right? We all doubt some. What I like about Thomas, he's just the one willing to ask the question, right? That's good. We all, we all need to look to do that. But these guys around this table, little do they know right now, but in days and in just over a month, they are going to be used in a movement that will set in motion what Jesus is talking about here. And so this is a beautiful picture, I believe, of the Father's heart and what he wants to do with people sitting next to you this morning sitting next to you in the cubicle at work, living next to you in the neighborhood you're in. He wants to have a relationship with them, and he does that through his son because he wants jacked up people to come sit at the table and commune with him. And not just to have a meal, but to have a relationship with him forever. And so he sits down and he has this meal with them and he earnestly desires this. He's eagerly desired this. What that means is there's a lot of emotion in Jesus in this moment because he knows what's coming, right? He knows what's coming because he says right here to them, um, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so he knows the events leading up. He he knew the guy with the pitcher that was going to get the upper room, right, for the disciples. He knows that he is going to be turned over and betrayed by Judas in mere hours, and he is going to be arrested, and he is going to go to the cross the next day, and he knows it's coming. And so the emotion in him is overwhelming. But as he looks across that table as he begins this meal, 
he looks into the eyes of these guys who he spent time with, and he knows that one's going to betray him. He knows that some are going to deny him. He knows they're going to run away. He, he knows they're confused because they're still thinking the kingdom of, 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 of God is going to come on earth, and Jesus is going to be that messianic king. He's going to overthrow Rome. That some view they have, and he knows, Lord, help them. Help them in their unbelief. Help them in their lack of understanding. And he is filled with emotion because he looks in their eyes and he knows also, I'm going to die for them tomorrow and for their sin. And so there's so much going on here in Jesus. Because remember, yes, he is God, but he is also fully man. And so can you imagine the emotion in him in this moment? And guys, I want you to know that's how, man, that's how Jesus looks at you. He looks at you and he looks and he sees people who he loves so much. And even with our mess ups and our screw ups and mistakes and all that we do, he looks at, he loves us and he, he wants so much for us to get it, to walk by faith, to follow him. And that's what all this emotion right here, he, he feels that for his people. Jesus loves you. Do you, you know, John 3, 16, I, I think God so loved the world that he gave. I mean, but this is emotional. Jesus loves you deeply. He loves you deeply, and we see that here. We see that here. And so this is a beautiful picture of fellowship right here. This meal affirms an intimate uh, oneness between Jesus and those he is eating with. And so suffering kind of becomes the theme here because he mentions that at the table. And they still don't know, what does this mean? Does this mean Jesus is going to get in some kind of you know, fight and there's going to be something between Rome and, 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 and what's going to happen here? They, they don't know. They don't know. And so he says to them, look at verse 16 through 18. He says, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it, this Passover meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. A loaded statement. And, the, and I wonder if the Jews are wondering, oh, is this going to happen in mere days and, and weeks? The kingdom of God, you're going to now be this physical earthly king, Jesus? I, I mean, I don't know. What are they thinking? Are they asking that? I mean, I would. I'd be like, hey, can you fill in the blanks here? What does fulfilled in the kingdom of God mean? What does it mean? And I don't know if they're asking those types of questions. But Jesus says that here, and it means so much. And look what he says in verse 17. When he had taken a cup, one of the cups of wine, and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the wine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And so here's what Jesus is meaning by this fulfillment of the kingdom of God and it coming is this. On Friday, this is Thursday, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to die. On Sunday, he's going to raise again. We celebrate his resurrection. We'll do that in just a month on Easter. He's going to raise again on the third day. After that, he's going to dwell here on earth in his uh, glorified body. He's going to hang out with his disciples. And then after 40 days, he will ascend into heaven, the Bible tells us. Where he now sits at the right hand of God. And that's where Jesus is today. He is in heaven with, at the right hand of God, reigning in all authority. And we don't know the time. We don't know the when. But Jesus one day will come again. 
And when he comes, the kingdom of God will be fulfilled here on earth. And he will come and he will bring his people, those who have followed him and trusted in him, well before us. So in line will be Abraham. In line will be David. In line will be the likes of a Ruth. In line will be the likes of a Jim Elliott. In line will, will be the likes of, of a Steve Smith, a, a missionary that passed away this, this week who came up with the 411 discipleship stuff. He passed away here in March. And so in line will be these people, uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, different people of faith, right? Alati Moon, I think it's like Corey Ten Boom, Alati Moon. Um, Different people of faith along Elizabeth Elliot. I mean, you name it, you name it. Just Billy Graham. I mean, it'll be. And guess what? Believers in here too. Believers in here too. That have passed on. And then those who are here on earth, he will bring to, and he will gather together his kingdom, all believers. And that will be the kingdom of God forever, those who have followed him. And so here's what it looks like, Revelation 7, just to kind of give you an ahead picture. Because here's the deal. Jesus has the end in mind. That's how he lived, man. He lived for today with the end in mind. Right? That's, that's how he lived. That's how he told us to live. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has all its worries. But today, do what? Seek first the kingdom of God. So what, what kind of living is that? Live today with the end in mind. And so here's the end, Revelation 7. After these things, I looked, and a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and tongues is standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying this, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God and forever and ever. Amen. That's a picture of heaven. That's a picture of the fulfilled kingdom of God now on earth. And we get to celebrate together. So that's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, I, I'm not going to eat this meal again to, till then. So Jesus hadn't ate the meal yet, guys. But he will one day. And here's the deal. He he, just as the disciples are around the table eating with him, guess what? He wants us there eating with him. He wants that relationship with us, and he wants us eating that meal with him in the kingdom. And so he tells them, I'm not going to eat this again until the kingdom comes. And then look at verse 19. Look what happens. He had taken some bread and given thanks. He broke it and gave it to him. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to freak them out. He's going to freak them out because what's he supposed to be doing? He's supposed to talk about the Exodus. He's supposed to be talking about the Passover. He's talking about, he takes bread and look what he says. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Somebody takes bread at your dinner table and says, listen, hey, take this bread. It's, it's my body. Eat it. Hello. I mean, that's shocking. That's shocking. That, I mean, think of the reality. That's shocking. This is shocking. And so Jesus, in the context of the Passover, in the context of the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, 
start speaking of what type of suffering, what he's going to go through. And so he says, this is my body, broken. Eat it. And then he says this. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so he takes all the symbols cup, the bread, and he gives them meaning of everything that the Passover was pointing to ultimately was him. And so what was it pointing to? Let me just give you a few thoughts on this this morning. When he says here, this is my body. Now think about this this morning. Jesus is our substitute. In fact, there's two times he says this, this is my body which is given for you. And then he says also in verse 20, this cup which is poured out for you. I love that phrase. He is our substitute. That's what he's communicating here. Jesus is going to die our death for you. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. All deserve death eternal death. All deserve hell, but here's what Jesus says. This is my body for you. This is my blood for you. He dies in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was perfect. Remember, he's God. He who knew no sin became sin. He bore the sin of all of us in him on the cross He became sin on our behalf. So why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So that we could have a relationship with the Father. So that we could have a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, that's what I did. Or that's what I'm going to do to his disciples in my body, in my blood. Now, do they know all that? No. No, but that's the meaning of this. Not only that, Jesus is the Passover lamb who saves us with his blood, just as the Israelites painted the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And the wrath of God passed over those homes with the blood of the lamb over it. Jesus is that Passover lamb for us. As Matthew one twenty one tells us, that, that he will save his people from their Sins. Those who trust in Jesus as their Lord, their Savior, who know him personally, the wrath of God will pass over you because Jesus is your Savior. He's also this. He's the covenant keeper who seals us with his blood. Look at this phrase in verse 20. It says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus here refers to his blood as being that which establishes the covenant, the covenant relationship with those who follow him. And so you got to go back to places like uh, Jeremiah 31 and places like Ezekiel 36 that, that begin to speak of this new covenant. So what was the new covenant about? It was about a promise. That's been a promise for hundreds of years that would come. And the Israelites were looking forward to this. And Jesus says here, here's this promise. It's the promise of forgiveness of sins, okay? It's the promise of a new spirit. 
that you would be given ultimately God's spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, that the law of God be written on your heart is how Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. So these are promises. And now Jesus is saying, as I shed my blood, I am purchasing for you this new covenant. And the promise, the blessings of this covenant is now open to you who believe. And so all of this that he is talking about and demonstrating with the symbols here at this table is speaking that. Now these disciples, they don't get all that right here. But on this side of the cross, that's the meaning. That's what he was pointing to. There's two words I want us to see here in verse 19 and verse 20. Jesus took the bread and it says he, he gave thanks. And so this meal and this time of that Jesus is having with his disciples is filled with thanksgiving. Filled with thanksgiving to God. Psalm 113 through 118. That's what it's all about. Thank God. Praise God. And so this is a meal of thanksgiving. But look what he says at the end of verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we see the Apostle Paul. He speaks of this to the church at Corinth as well. And he says, hey, church, when you gather, do this that Jesus has commanded us to do as, as often as you gather until the Lord returns. And so there's two words that I want us to see here. It's this idea of remembering, this remembrance with thanksgiving. This was a very Jewish thing. And the act of recalling these events that they did and that we do now as a church, as we remember Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice as the Passover lamb and the covenant keeper that was sealed with his blood, as we remember that, as we recall those things, here's what happens. It solidifies a community's identity by taking you and I back even, just as he did with his disciples, back to the Exodus and the Passover. It takes us back to our roots. And when I say our roots, it takes us back to Calvary. It takes us back to what Jesus did for us, to events that are forged into our mind, into our lives, as a part of who we have become, and that we remember that. It gives the body together as the church, as one to reaffirm what God has done for us. It's filled with the remembrance of sacrifice and symbolism in which they share and recall the concept, which is called, and this is an interesting word this morning, it's called sikron, okay? Just give you kind of a new word. It's a Hebrew word. It's C-I-K-R-O-N. And I want you to remember this because here's what it means. It means where something clings to your memory. Something clings to your memory. I don't know if you've ever maybe had the question of why every Sunday do we take the bread and take the cup? And one of the reasons is because we want to have clinging to your memory what Jesus did for you. That's what remembrance means. Because we want you to remember your identity in him. And what you've become because of him and what he wants you to become in him. But we want you to have that clinging to your memory. 
And here's, here's why I believe, because what he wanted them to understand, he wanted them to understand eventually that he is gathering a new people, right? Not national Israel, right? But he's gathering the church, his people, bought by his blood, forgiven of sin. And he wants them to remember his identity as a people, and that they have a mission. In light of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, they have a mission, and their mission is to proclaim. We are to be a people who remember and proclaim the coming kingdom. And so my prayer today as we think about this meal, just a few thoughts, is that one, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to sit at the table with him in the coming kingdom. He did something to make that happen. He went to a cross and he became a substitute. He took your place. That's what that means. So that you wouldn't have to die a sinner's death, an eternal death in hell. Because that is the price we will pay for our sin if we do not let him pay for it and trust him for that. Believe in him for that. if we don't believe in him as our Lord, as our king, and surrender our life to him, then, then we will pay that. But Jesus paid it for us, forgave our sin, so that we could have a relationship with God forever and enjoy him in the kingdom of God. And as the people of God, he wants us to always remember that and to live in light of that and have that mark who we are and who we're becoming forever that we would grow as his disciples and that we would proclaim this story just as the Israelites were to do and to remember not just in a yearly festival but daily, that we would proclaim it to the ends of the earth so every tribe and every tongue and every nation, Revelation 7, would know that Jesus is the Son of God who died for us. He's the Passover lamb. And there is a world broken. There is a world that needs to hear that. And we're called as his people to proclaim it. Church, I pray this clings to your memory. Let it cling. Let me pray.